So hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI. I'm Sorsha O'Callaghan, I'm the Director of HPG and I'm really delighted uh, to welcome to London um, and to HPG um, three really um, kind of four-month country directors um, uh, who are going to talk to us today about the situation in Sudan. So we've organised this event in collaboration with the INGO Forum in Sudan, um, as well as with uh, Safer World. Um, and so on my right, um, I've got uh, Sibongani Kaiola from Mercy Corps. She's the country director of Mercy Corps and also the chair of the INGO Forum in Sudan. Um, on my left, I've got Will Carter, who's the country director of the Norwegian Refugee Council. And online um, from Port Sudan, um, we've got Etizaz Youssef, uh, who's the country director of the International Rescue Committee, IRRC. Um, I don't think I need to tell you um, just what a critical time we're facing in Sudan at the moment. We're hearing just absolutely horrifying stories from Darfur about uh, levels of ethnic cleansing, atrocities, sexual violence um, across um, that state, um, but also beyond. Um, there are alarming um, reports about humanitarian need now um, um, require that half the population are in uh, need of humanitarian assistance. Sudan is now also the country with the largest number of displaced people in the world. Um, and millions, over a million more are thought to have displaced across its borders. And yet we know that this is also a conflict and a crisis that just hasn't hit the headlines despite the severity of the needs, despite the levels of atrocities that people there are facing. We know that global attention is elsewhere. Um, but meanwhile, the humanitarian response is really facing you know, acute challenges, financial challenges, operational challenges, but also challenges in terms of how it should operate in a, such a complex environment. Um, so I don't think we could imagine any better um, set of people to tell us more about the situation um, than the people we have today. So we're going to start with you, um, Sibon Ghani. Um, if you can just maybe set the scene for us a little bit, if you can describe, you know, what you're seeing um, with Mercy Corps in terms of the, the level of needs, um, but also some of the challenges that that you and other aid organizers uh, organizations are facing. Um, well, yesterday, uh, November 15 was the seven month mark since the start of the crisis. And even before the start of the, the current crisis, there were millions of people who needed assistance in Sudan. And what we've seen over the last seven months is really many more people falling into this cycle of fragility. Um, so as Sorsha indicated earlier, we now have 25 million people requiring humanitarian assistance. That's half the population of Sudan. So think about that, half of an entire country requiring humanitarian assistance. Close to 6 million people um, next year will be classified um, as facing acute food insecurity on the brink of famine. Um, 3 million children are displaced. These are young children who have innocence, innocently lived um, and they've been forced to flee their homes, some of them on their own. 
Um, and behind these numbers is a face. Behind these numbers is a child, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, and all of these people are suffering um, today. Um, unfortunately, civilians are bearing the brunt of the atrocities. Women and girls are being raped, subjected to sexual violence. There's arbitrary detentions, denied access to health care, to education, to other facilities, basic facilities. Um, when we look at the most basic of human rights, the right to shelter, people don't have adequate shelter. They're forced to make do in communal shelters where they don't have access to clean water, they don't have access to sanitary facilities. Um, and there's currently an outbreak of diseases as well. So as we're speaking as of this morning, uh, Gadarev State has recorded 700 cases of cholera, this in the 21st century. And we know cholera is a basic, 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 basic um, disease that just requires clean water. And so for something like that to be happening in a country that already has so many challenges really speaks to the the drastic change um, that we've seen over the last couple of months. Um, and the impact goes beyond those who are displaced. So there's people who are being hosted by family members, but millions more have nowhere to go. Others have fled into countries such as Chad and South Sudan, which already have their own challenges. Um, and we're already hosting significant numbers of refugees prior to the start of the current crisis. Um, in the traditional um, Sudanese manner, families have been very generous in opening up their homes and sharing what they have with those who have lost everything. However, it's been seven months and many families are contending with not receiving salaries, um, given that Khartoum was the economic heartbeat of the country, but they still continue to show this generosity of spirit. Um, and it's gotten to a point now where those who don't have families to host them, who can't seek shelter in some of these collective shelters are starting to return to Khartoum, despite the violence and protection concerns that they're faced with. Life is so unbearable in other parts of the country that they're forced to go back to places where they're, they're um, potentially exposed to more violence. Um, and so it's really a devastating situation and it almost feels like there is no hope um, for the next couple of months. As, um, as a community, we've been working with local responders, but also with national organizations and as international organizations, doing our best to support the response. And in the first seven months of the crisis, we've reached 3.5 million people. However, when you look at the scale of the needs and what we've been able to do, there is so much more that needs to be done. Uh, and we acknowledge that as a sector. Um, and the biggest challenge is that are preventing us from reaching the millions more who do need um, the assistance. Well, first of all, is the insecurity and the lack of respect for international humanitarian law by the parties to the conflict. And so it is a really dangerous environment for us to ask people to go out and provide support to other community members. This really hampers um, our operations. Every single INGO, and there are over 60 INGOs in Sudan, every single INGO has had their offices looted. That is the scale of the insecurity in the country. Um, in addition, we're also confronted with bureaucratic challenges and access challenges, which really do amount to an arbitrary denial of access. 
Um, to date, as a community, we have over 90 INGO visas pending, and these are for specialized staff who have the skills and expertise that would allow us to surge um, and scale up our response, but they're not being allowed into the country. Um, even within the country, where we do have staff who've been working with us for a very long time, um, there are denials of permission to move across the country to get to other parts of the country without justified reasons. Um, so we have an example in Gadara where we were trying to get to a community to provide assistance and we were told we couldn't go with no, in, in, in line with what is described in the basis of why, why access should be denied. We did not violate any rules. We did not contravene any requirements, but we were just not given that permission. Um, funding, as you said, Sosha, is still an issue. Only 30% of the humanitarian response plan is funded. Um, and the INGO sector, just us as a collective of INGOs, have contributed more to the response than some EU member states. So think about that, trying to scale up a response at a time when the funding is not forthcoming, when we're not seeing donors step up as they should. Um, it's really, really is appalling given the scale of this crisis. Um, however, as I said, despite all of the challenges, um, we're doing our best to really scale up. And this is based on the community acceptance that we have over the decades we've been working in Sudan, our work with local stakeholders um, and, and the partners, uh, the long suffering partners um, that we have. Just in closing, honestly, the worst is yet to come. We have not yet seen the worst. Um, Sudan is virtually on the state, um, on the edge of collapse, basically. So no health services, no education services, shortages of vital supplies, um, basic services, electricity, water, non-functional, um, and already in a very, very dire situation. So it's it's really tough. Yeah, it's a very difficult picture you're painting. Um, you've said that the worst is yet to come. Can you maybe say a few more words about that and what you see kind of unfolding over the next six to 12 months? Um, well, first and foremost, like I said, there's um, there's a large group of people who are on the verge of famine. Um, this year, a number of farmers were not able to cultivate because one um, insecurity prevented them from planting their fields, harvesting their crops, but also a number of farmers have reported to us that they needed to access financial resources from banks in order to be able to purchase the inputs they needed to farm, and they couldn't do that. Um, so what we're seeing is a very serious food insecurity situation that is coming our way next year. Um, the collapse of basic services. So currently, when we look at the health system and the education system, where 80% of, of medical facilities have been taken offline with an average of an attack on a health facility every single month since the start of the conflict, where do people go to access health services? Um, treatment for basic diseases, um, vaccinations for newborns are not taking place. So you have a whole lot of babies who are going to be exposed to things like measles, which is a basic, basic thing um, that we shouldn't be talking about. Um, and when we look at the regional implications of the conflict as well, so you have people who fled into Chad and people who fled into South Sudan, already those countries are unstable. 
we don't know what could happen um, in the months to come. So it's really not just limited, the impacts of this are not limited to Sudan, but affect the region as a whole as well. Okay, thank you. Um, it is us, can I call you in at this point? Um, we heard some a little bit from Sibungani about kind of some of the wider effects in terms of health and educational effects. Can you talk a little bit more about that um, in terms of what you're seeing um, and some of the implications? Yeah, thank you very much, actually. So if uh, I guess Sibungani uh, is really painted a very gloomy picture for the, the Sudan. Then looking at the health and education, even before the crisis or before the war, they are really suffering a lot. And majority of uh, the services being really supported by NGOs and humanitarian actors in the sport and in Kutufan and also in the special area. And now that is really impacting the thing. So the, 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 just to give an example that the health facility in the area that is really witnessing the fighting, most of 70% of those uh, facilities being closed. And also population movement increasingly uh, increased the demand and uh, further placing a strain on the very limited capacity. And as the, also uh, Sonjani mentioned, uh, the, the crowdness and the, the, the weaknesses or almost failure of the health system is a contributor to those disease outbreaks that we can talk about the malaise for the children that is not being vaccinated, the outbreak of cholera and then fever in Zadarif and Khartoum uh, and also in the Gezira. So that is really had a very, very severe impact on that. Looking and that combined with the very bad economic situation that the country is going through it and uh, looking at the inflation, and this is really now more, of, uh, more than 250% actually, which uh, uh, they really impacting uh, the purchasing power and uh, erosion of the purchasing power of the community. And also the looting and the reduced agriculture output due to the people losing the harvest, that it will be really a, a have, it will be having a huge impact on the peace security of the Sudanese in 2024 because people they should really not looking now now at, the, at this time but also the the next uh, the next period it will be worse with that massive displacement the the, the economic collapse. Uh, the, 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 the food security and agriculture situation, that is really impact a lot in different ways. Also, I do believe Sudan is really in a very uh, education crisis, like 19 million of the children in Sudan out of the school. Uh, if we're talking about number 6.5 million is really in the area that impacted by the conflict. 5.5 million in the area that we consider safe, but still they are waiting for the authorities to uh, let them know when the, the school is open. And uh, the, the failure of the government to pay the, 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 the salary of the civil servant heavily impact that. And I don't see any dilemma. That's why we've been as an NGO advocating to look at also the quality of the funding that we are receiving. Because the emergency fund and the humanitarian fund alone cannot tackle this uh, nature and type of the, 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 the crisis that we have. So we need to uh, get some source of fund that is go hand with the hand, that is uh, some some uh, funding to cover partially and subsidize the salary, do a, a rehabilitation because the massive destruction happening in the school and health facility also require a, a sort of uh, uh, reconstruction fund to support the recovery of the country if even we get to the ceasefire or we get to a, a, a lasting peace agreement. 
I will be stopping here. Uh, uh, I guess the situation is really alarming and uh, the, the implication is very, very hard. And uh, the, the number of the displacement and the movement is way beyond anyone to really to respond to it. Thanks, Etienne. I mean, the, the figures are really just staggering, actually, just listening to both of you. But, um, you know, as you say, the longer term effects in terms of food security, health, education, you know, you're feeling them already, but they're also coming down the road. You know, I know that um, this crisis, I mean, every crisis is um, is one where, you know, national and local responders are so critical. But given the insecurity and the obstacles that that you are facing as international actors, actually, the, the scale and the network of local responders and what they've been able to achieve has been, you know, really remarkable. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know IRC has been working with um, some of the emergency response rooms, um, but yeah, I mean, what are some of the things that you would point to in terms of uh, mutual aid efforts and, and local action in Sudan? Yeah, thank you very much. I guess, uh... The, the crisis and the, the nature of the crisis is uh, limited uh, an ability of many, many actors like NGOs, UN, and even local NGOs to respond in some of the hard reach area. And uh, that is opened the door to the mutual aid initiative that we call them neighborhood initiative or community-based initiative or emergency room uh, initiative. All of them, they are really uh, scale up and they became a real responder to, to some, uh, mainly in Khartoum and in Darfur. And uh, it, is a, it is a very new way of doing support is that our system is not really being designed to provide support quicker and, and faster to those type with all the due diligence and the, uh, vetting process and every way that we are doing things. So we find them, they really step up and they are being more agile, more quicker and adaptive and flexible to respond to the need. And also the acceptance and the, the flexibility for them to go with their need. Like some of them, they do just uh, uh, like evacuation of the people from being trapped in a very hard area to reach. They're providing soup kitchen, that providing meals to uh, the patient in hospital or in the area that they don't have food. They manage really to provide protection and cash to the people that have been victim to the GBB and rape cases, and they transfer them. And also they've done a referral system. They move patients from Khartoum using different means of transportation. So for us, I guess a few of uh, us, that even some of them in the room like NRC, they really managed to come with some innovative approach. But uh, we use our own resources, like our unrestricted fund. But when we prove and find that the approach is really doable and it can be implemented, the donors start buying in and they provide some uh, some sort of uh, support to it. But it's still, we feel that is the, the risk sharing uh, responsibility and framework is not uh, uh, implemented yet because if you look at all the agreement and everything it's being just left for the organization to hold the responsibility it's depend on our own uh, vetting system it is then on our own responsibility to handle it but for us during this type of context and this way and the, the, this uh, nature of crisis we should show that the responsibility together is not living alone and if we are really talking about localization, we need really to walk the talks and people really to be willing and open 
to share that responsibility together and not leave it for us to test it and try it. And then when we have a matured model, then people, they will be buying. So I guess this is one. And also we need to understand it is a different way of doing uh, the, the doing the, the air uh, delivery. And, and for us, looking at them, it, they are not an NGOs and we are not really willing to, uh, to convert them to the local NGOs. They used to be a very vocal, they are really community initiative, they are very flexible. So uh, it will be really figuring out a way how to support them, to support their community in a way that they cannot be uh, some uh, some structure or entity. They have a legal entity, they can register, they have financial system. So we knew that is a dilemma, but it, uh, to prove this is the only and quicker and easy way and even cheaper way to do that type of response when crisis happen. And I guess Sudan, it should be a model to be really look at it and to document the lesson there. And instead of just inventing the wheel, we can have that as a social model and to see how we can capitalize on that. So I guess that's one of uh, the issues that we need to look at it for this mutual aid initiative. And uh, and also for us, uh, we need to look at uh, the, the, to look at bad things and uh, complement it with our traditional way of delivering aid and support. But I do believe still localization is a very large concept. We need to have a better definition and a better understanding and also bold commitment than what the people really committed at it and to come with a more concrete, uh, practical way actually when we implemented what we mean and what we need to do. Thank you very much. Thanks, and I'm sure we'll come back to that in the, the questions and the discussion, because certainly the kind of the need to prove the benefit of um, emergency response rooms and the kind of mutual aid efforts in Sudan. I mean, the, the case has been proven. I don't think it should be up to IRC or NRC to have to continually to make this case to donors. Um, you spoke, Etizaz, about kind of failures in the system to, to recognize, I guess, um, the role of, of these mutual aid efforts. This is something, Will, you've been talking about a lot, um, you know, being very vocal about, about this is a kind of a system failure that we're seeing in Sudan, um, partly in relation to, to local aid efforts, but beyond that. Do you want to talk a bit more about that and what yeah, you're seeing? I, I guess I want to shout and scream about, about that. Um, the... I mean, those numbers are terrifying, really. You know, six million people lost everything and fled their homes already in, in seven months. Um, six million people already a step away from famine, and we're only a few months into this. So imagine where things are going in the next few months and what will happen to a very fragile region. Um, but, you know, I, we'd relocated our team out of Khartoum, put them in, in our closest office in White Nile, just after this happened, I you know, flew up to the north of South Sudan and we crossed the border and linked up with them. And I walked into some of these collective shelters that Mutual Aid was running, completely overwhelmed. Um, and you know, this is only a few hundred thousand people into this displacement crisis. And the numbers kept flowing. And I was so, I remember being very, apart from feeling overwhelmed, but very sad to see the situation you know streaming in front of us and very little attention coming to you know, of course the evacuations of diplomats you know seized the headlines for a couple of weeks but everyone else who was left behind you know with airstrikes going on in the capital and you know the whole capital city sacks and 
rate. Um, and then, you know, another military offensive opening up and the Kordofan area and ethnic conflict and mass atrocities happening in Darfur. And so I ended up, you know, feeling very sad at that time. And, you know, a few months later, we were trying to reopen our, our Darfur operations and we'd flown into Eastern Chad and, you know, there, you know, hundreds of thousands of refugees, maybe half a million or more now in camps with almost nothing, um, you know, in Eastern Chad. And they're not just refugees, they're, they are genocide survivors from 20 years ago and genocide survivors, to be frank, from right now. And they have almost nothing to eat because the world doesn't care enough to cough up anything. And then we drive 30 kilometers into a devastated city and our teams have been trying to work down. We've just reopened our international presences there. And this is in West Darfur and there's devastation in some of those you know, suburbs. And okay, a lot of people fled, but I've met whole neighborhoods that have been shot up and met, you know, war widows essentially with children who couldn't leave many of them now pregnant because of the abuses that have come you know families with disabled people or elderly people and they couldn't make the travel and didn't know what they were going to and so that sadness kind of turned a bit to anger mm -hmm. uh, a system which you know is supposed to prevent the worst from happening it's supposed to prevent genocides it's supposed to prevent famines you can see clearly a famine coming next year supposed to facilitate aid access new life-saving assistance and i didn't see any of these like basic parts of the international system really working in sudan and so you know and this is we don't this is too much right it's the, the numbers are large and so i see i think we see you know a failure really to see any leadership on the globe on you know the world stage on, on what's happening in sudan world leaders have been silent you know most ministers you know foreign or development haven't really focused on this um you know it's barely made it into the security council standing business you know um everyone's kind of at a little bit of a loss so we see a failure of leadership really to escalate this in the proper in the proper way um and you know i think part of it and we've just tried to appeal to people in brussels and geneva and now london and you know the leadership failure is a failure also of vision like people don't haven't figured out what the options are to move forward in this very depressing very you know desperate situation but we need leadership and this is what you know either member states or the multilateral system needs to produce um it's been a failure to adapt to a new reality you know we 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 have a, a you know a multilateral system that works between governments you know we we had the transitional civilian prime minister deposed a couple of years ago now no one controls the capital they have a de facto administration in the northeast of the country and so the normal way of working also doesn't apply and we haven't had the leadership to adapt to what it means in this context you know Darfur the size of Spain or Kordofan which is completely neglected or Khartoum you know we kind of we haven't figured out how to work and at the same time as you mentioned and uh, you know it's as in Simogani as well you know the mutual aid networks have stood up there are NGOs working some of these places, neither to be honest at much scale, but we've had a failure to lead, we've had a failure to adapt, and we've had a failure to include. Like there's okay, there's the formal parts of the international system, there's local voluntary efforts, 
there's diaspora efforts. There's other parts of civil society, you know, the doctors' unions and pharmacists' associations and other crucial parts. And so we haven't really seen this moment where we're supposed to come together for a better response and also that the international system is supposed to be stepping up. Um, so it's, yeah, I've been angry. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I can see why you're angry. Um, and, you know, also you and, and others, Etizaz have been, you know, operating in this environment for a very long time. And so this is not a new crisis. These are not organizations that don't have depth of experience and, and relationships and access to kind of the international stage, but also deep into civil society, you know, so this, we should be able to make the case for Sudan. It's a context that has been on the world stage and is well known in terms of, you know, its significance in the region, but its significance internationally. I mean, do you have any thoughts about kind of how to move forward on on what seemed to be you know really challenging situation yeah i mean the the international system is being critiqued how we do how we structured aid has been pretty i think it's time to not discuss it but to put it into practice and already as you say there's a use case that local responders are working ngos are in parts of darfur and kordofan and khartoum um we have to be realistic about where everyone's best place and how we can come together you know i think this is a massively underfunded response but we can do better together with what we have um so there needs to be enough openness and leadership to apply some of the critiques and ideas and lessons from you know the global system from other similar contexts when we get these types of environments so i think there's that um clearly the you know regardless of the money the low level of engagement you know this is at the moment Sudan's still seen as a you know a regional problem which needs only regional solutions it's a humanitarian technical problem I mean apart from the moral failure that currently represents how everyone's responded to Sudan it is you know quickly going to become a geopolitical issue and I don't understand why there's this feet dragging and this hushed you know like don't know what to do there will be a domino effect mm -hmm. you know every country that the million plus refugees have fled to is a very vulnerable place and you know many are going back into conflict zones themselves you know from upper nile state in south sudan amhara and tigray parts of ethiopia you know car libya chad you know it's mind-boggling really to think this is going anywhere other than a complete catastrophe and it won't you know we need to do better to help hundreds of thousands more people live but also to to stop the worst from spreading yeah. even further yeah i mean it's remarkable i think now that darfur is slightly kind of being hitting the world stage or at least some kind of headlines just the difference in terms of the reaction to darfur 20 years ago and today where it was seen as a geopolitical priority where there was engagement i mean oftentimes you know misjudged engagement but it was on the world stage it was on the political agenda there was a response um um so it's really stark to see the difference from 20 years ago to to today um it's quite a depressing picture we're we're hearing and and seeing from from Etisaz as well i'm going to open it up now we've got actually you know, quite a large audience online. I think there were 200 registered online. So I'm sure there's going to be lots of questions um, coming in online. Um, but before we go to to online, maybe to, to open up into the room, we've got a lot of 
expertise, uh, Sudanese expertise in, in the room here as well. So yeah, if you'd like to ask a question, please introduce yourself. Um, there's a mic, I think, that's that's going around. Um, um, just in introduce yourself if you have an organization, uh, say who you, you are, but also if you just want to make a comment or reaction, please, please do so as well. Um, so now opening up and I have someone here at the back and Bashar at the front. Um, I've got lots of questions, so maybe we'll take um, maybe take uh, three or four of them, uh, do around here, and then take some online as well. Okay. My name is Chris Cattaway. I'm the new um, humanitarian assistance head of humanitarian assistance for All We Can and Care International. Um, it's probably a bad word in here, but a month ago I started in this role, and I've come here as dare I say, relief from thinking about Palestine. But we could equally well be here for many other crises around the world. And I think they're all suffering the same from the same fate at the moment. They are forgotten because humanitarian aid has become political. And um, I, I do think that perhaps we need to think as a sector as to how can we rebuild the ship while we're sailing it. And perhaps Sudan is one of those places where we do need to use our advocacy voices we do need to use the experience that we can bring from the people in the field who really deserve a hell of a lot better to be able to rebuild the system around us because quite frankly at the moment it is failing those people not only in Sudan but elsewhere too and that would be my challenge I think as to how can we do that because I don't see any other way at the moment of getting the political engagement um, that's going to be needed before anything changes in these countries. Do you have any thoughts in terms of a month into the role? What do you think would be required? Well, to be honest, I, I mean, I'm I'm an old hack. I've been around the humanitarian system for 28 years. I've been living overseas for a few, so I've just come back to the UK. We don't have the fire in our belly that we used to have in terms of campaigning, in terms of advocacy, in terms of being courageous enough to actually say what we know is right. I think we're treading politically correct eggshells too often at the moment. Mm. Um, and we need to we need to represent those people who don't have the voice that we are entrusted to, to use on their behalf. Um, and I honestly think that is the answer. I think we've become too politically compliant. There are perhaps many reasons for that, um, but we need to remain independent and we need to remember who our customers are. They are not the government. They are the people who are in those places that you've described today um and, and there needs to be some rethinking i think at the top of uh, not only the, the the global humanitarian system i think yeah. um and this idea of development drr and humanitarian load of rubbish but it's always been the same there have been people playing power games for many years to try to differentiate it i think that's one thing these people are in a crisis it gets worse and it gets a little bit better to as good as it's ever going to get but we need to kind of collaborate our efforts on that so we are speaking with one voice and then we, we need to uh, stop the differentiation between, you know, the donors and the recipients of aid. Actually, we're all in it together. If we don't want to be all in it together as equal partners, then we shouldn't be in it at all, is my, maybe my view. So that's perhaps the voice of, you know, a grumpy old man coming back and really wanting to, to see change. But I do see that unless we do actually get some fire in our belly, then things aren't going to change. Yeah, thank you. Um... Who was next? Uh, maybe Bashar um, here at the front. And uh, thank you very much. And um, it's good to hear from all of you in terms of the situation on Sudan. Uh, my name is Bashar Ahmed. I'm from an organization called Shebeke, uh, diaspora organization. So um, 
uh, have um, just kind of some questions and thoughts because you very much talked about Sudan as within the borders, but this is a very much a borderless crisis. So what kind of approaches are you seeing? Um, is it just Sudan country team meeting together or are you uh, working with colleagues across borders because all the issues um, uh, crossing into that? Secondly, you're talking about Sudan as a crisis generally um, as well. What about the specific zones? Because I think um, we need to kind of look at the, you know, the building, you know, the box, what's happening in the northern states, what's happening in Blue Knot. All of these require different approaches. So I just wanted to hear a little bit um, how, uh, as NGOs, are you operating um, on, this on that premise? Thank you. Thanks, Bashar. And that's it. You want to? Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Fatih Abdullah. I worked uh, for UNHCR and the NGOs for about 30 years. Uh, probably I'm like it's uh, a bit moving <laughs> around the world. And we have seen this emergency. I worked with William when we were in Afghanistan. It was a difficult situation. So I'm hearing from you. I just want to congratulate you for being there and being in this room and talking about Sudan. Indeed, the, 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 the emergency has subsided from the world. Uh, and, and I was really, you know, I, I get angry like you and I get really upset because when I saw the evacuation out of Sudan and that is it, there's nothing for the people. And it's, it's, it's really hard because the people need us. And we here in the diaspora, like you, uh, from Shabaka and all of us, Sudanese who are in UK, we tried really in terms of advocacy. We 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 did demonstration. We went to the UK government and said, "What's happening? Why are you not responding? You're sitting on the Security Council. What's happening?" And there's silence from mm -hmm. all government. So there is a secret behind this, and it's a regional issues indeed, and 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 it's really hard. So for the advocacy, I think we have to continue that. Tell us what you need from us. Advocacy work, and it mm -hmm. worked for us in other places. And we managed to overcome those emergency, and we are still the people who are there. And I think we should do more of that. So we rely on you. You are on ground. Let us know what you want us to do. I am happy to go anywhere. But sometimes I get in the middle of the night and say, "Shall I call Guterres? What can we do? This cannot be silent. You know, it's really hard." And my second point is about the community response that you work on, and and I think that is. For now, maybe the way forward, because there are people there who want to support. There are many young people, name it in the whole Sudan, they want to do something, but they don't know where, it, where to enter. And maybe you are the entry point for them to support them to respond. Now, I'm coming to the big issue, which is crisis. You said we have educational crisis indeed, but we have GBV crisis. We have sexual-based gender violence crisis affecting women and girls. You said there are so many pregnancies. There will be many children who have no fathers. And this issue really cannot be silent as well. So I want us to make that issue big. I was in a discussion last week in London University on GBV. And it's really hard to put Sudan in the picture. I know there's a lot of cases, but where, 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 what do we do? Where, where can it be in the agenda? Because this is a zero tolerance. It should not mm. be something we should be silent about, and it should come from Sudan itself. But thank you so much for all what you're doing, and I'm glad I'm being here with you. And I hope we will collaborate more. Thank you so much. Thanks, Fatia. And then we have a young man at the back here who's been 
politely putting his hand up and then maybe we'll do another round. Thanks a lot. Um, I hope everybody can hear me. I, should I stand up or it's okay? Yeah. Uh, well, perfect. I'm from, I'm a student at LSE in London and I would just like maybe from, from the, the panelists, how would you, what do you think is the best way to organize humanitarian response in the Sudan context? Would you go, should we talk with SAF and our RF or or should it be more of a border engagement where you where you support those that have have uh, fled in in the neighboring states and then also related to this should humanitarian response not maybe be more political than it is because we just mentioned it is about the people and not about politics but at the same time you have to think about who you're engaging with when you're providing the humanitarian assistance thanks a lot thank you very much there's a lot of issues there um are we doing enough in terms of advocacy um what more can be done the regional issues the internal kind of response and how to organize that um how to get more support to the community response um how to use diaspora more gender-based violence issues the kind of the model and whether a more political approach is required it says will we start with you um, and you can maybe pick up which of these issues you think you can speak to the best, and then we'll come back yeah. into the room. So thank you. I guess uh, I can just uh, put uh, some additional thought about the protection crisis that we have. So I guess Sudan is not only a GBB case. There is a lot of, of atrocity, a lot of, of uh, force di uh, displaced, uh, disappearance, child recruitment, and even domestic violence that the women have it. And I guess traditionally we've been really having a huge issue with accountability and hold people accountable when they are committing that. So it is not a matter of just reporting cases, actually how to hold people accountable on that. So the accountability is something that I guess a lot of the, the same group they are committing those crimes, still they are getting away with it. So how to ensure that accountability is bringing back to the to the system and how will be ensuring the uh, rule of law uh, in that? But I guess all of us, as a, even as IRC as a protection uh, agency, we've been struggling a lot to ensure that how we've been implementing the protection in, in intervention in the context that even the community themselves, they don't feel that uh, protection is something tangible and should be really implemented because even doing and stand alone protection is something that you need to put a lot of effort, energy to start implementing that. The authority, they facing an issue with it, they are not accepting it. The community themselves with the stigma, they are not reporting it. So you need to have it an integrated way and approach to implement the protection of uh, intervention in Sudan. But definitely it is a big issue. We need to have a collective approach to have it. And also to have one common understanding because for a while, the Sudan is running without even a proper protection strategy for us to implement and to have a guidance and to have a referral pathway and to have a complaint mechanism system to start reporting. And for me, even just compared with what's going in Gaza, there's a very systematic way of reporting given the number of deaths and the number of people that are really being displaced. But in Sudan context, it's a really a full of lies, a full of false information. And then you don't have an accurate number of anything is number of displacement and number of deaths, number of people that are subject for GBV cases. So that is that issue is a big concern and also it is a big gap for us to quantify the, the problem and 
come with a, a better solution and also to have a better advocacy for, for, for that one. But I do agree protection is an area that is where really an attention for it. And uh, we, we need to look at that. And second things, and uh, I guess also I need to flag it and to highlight it, is the mental uh, mental situation in Sudan, by the way, in terms of the community themselves, in terms of that sponsor, the, the, the national staff that are now scaling about responding, the majority of them, they are displaced, actually. They are IDPs. They have the trauma. They have all the, the problem. And also they have their own protection concern. And for years, also the, the government, they many completely dismantled the capacity of agency to respond to the protection. And uh, they've been fighting any protection actor to be responded in, in, in Sudan. And now with these massive things, we don't have the right capacity in Sudan to respond to the, the protection uh, crisis that we have. We can do health, we can do uh, education easily because we can bring that capacity. But for the protection response, you need the specialized people, you need the same people, you need the system, you need a repairer password, which is completely missing. And also legal framework, we don't have it. If you really committed a rape, there's our, our law, they don't have a clear way how to really hold the people accountable for that. And I, I guess that is the major factor, and unless we are really managing to hold people accountable, the protection issues will be keep going and uh, the, the cleansing will, it will continue and people they they just move away with it and that is a, another part of frustration i guess happening like the looting now there's no even a report to anyone to tell that your saving for the whole life is being just disappeared so that 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 is the problem and that the, really the lack of law uh, rule of law in sudan is a huge gap there's no police now, so you can commit any crime. No one will hold you accountable. I guess I will stop here. I'm not adding more frustration to the room. <laughs> Do you want to pick up the issue of, I guess, the kind of whether different responses are needed in different parts of, of Sudan? We're hearing of, of Darfur kind of, I guess, splitting off in a kind of a Libya type arrangement. And so, I mean, how do you organize a response in such a kind of a, a vast but also quite different um environment within Sudan but also the cross-border issues that, that Bashar raised. Um just reflecting on some of the inputs that I've come um as somebody who's early career in the sector I think our biggest weakness as a sector is our failure to view the mutual aid efforts that are taking place as equal to the efforts of international organizations. That is the starting point. We do not see ourselves as equal. And this is evident. Um, I was listening to a podcast this morning, which um, was hosted by the New Humanitarian and someone from a, a mutual aid background. And he says, even in the acronyms that we use, so we'll speak about the clusters, we'll speak about WASH, and these mutual aid groups have already been working in Sudan for a very long time doing all of these things, but we lock them out of the system because of all this technical language that we're using. Um, and so when we as a sector need to first and foremost be open to viewing them as equals, and then we need to adapt our approaches to accommodate mutual aid initiatives as, a, as opposed to expecting them to, to change, to align with our um, systems. Um, we also need to stop looking at mutual aid as supplemental to the international response, because clearly in Sudan at the moment, mutual aid 
could play a much larger role um, than the international response. And so we need to recognize that central role that mutual aid is playing. Now, in recognizing that role, one of the things that we need to do is to better recognize the risks that these mutual initiatives face. So an example is when you look at the numbers, we will say, oh, 18 aid workers have been killed since the start of the conflict. But this does not include the many members of emergency response rooms who have been killed delivering aid. We are not counting the people who've been arbitrarily detained in the same way that we would if we were talking about international organizations. Um, so our work with humanitarian funding um, is still very rigid with very heavy compliance requirements and donors need to engage in providing flexible funding, adapting their approaches. They need to engage and to recognize that we should not be transferring risk to these mutual aid initiatives. Um, and so an example of something that we could do is to pilot the grand bargain risk sharing framework in Sudan, um, which way, which will enable greater support to mutual aid initiatives. And- Can I just ask a follow-up question? It's coming online. Um, you've talked a bit about the kind of capacity of local organizations, but there's a specific question about kind of what portion of larger INGOs are partnering um, with mutual aid organizations and, and local organizations instead of doing direct implementation. Can you kind of describe how that setup is working? Um, so the knowledge I have about organizations that are working with mutual aid groups, I have because as a forum, we are aware of what our membership is doing. So I know individual organizations, for example, Organization X and Organization mm -hmm. Y, but that information is not in the public domain. And so we don't have a concrete figure in saying 60% of NGOs in Sudan, for example. And it goes back to how we view this, the, these initiatives in our sector. Because if we if this was a metric that we aspired to, to say 70%, for example, we would have systems to track it, but we don't. Mm -hmm. So the knowledge that we do have, we have through the inter interpersonal relationships that we have e with each other as country directors, which shows just how our system is not built to recognize the efforts of mutual aid actors. Mm -hmm. I mean, one statistic I've heard is that despite the big push that there's been about a million dollars that has been going into funding mutual aid efforts. Um, and that's the money that's been put in, but the money that's been actually received by emergency response groups at this point has been about 200,000. I don't know whether that's, you know, an out of date, but, you know, when you think about the scale of the appeal is at 1.3 billion, it's just like peanuts. Um, well, there were a lot of questions asked. You could pick up any of them, um, but maybe a little bit about the advocacy um, and a bit about the kind of the model of the response. Yeah. Um, Chris, Fatia, I completely agree. We, I don't see the advocacy coming through just yet. Um, I feel like we've lost a campaign type, you know, capacity from within an NGO community. It used to be about a compassionate response to the world and i see you know some of the bureaucracy and professionalization numbing this this aspect um so i think that needs to come back um but it's you know in a different different generation you know there's i think diaspora groups can be very strategic in this uh i think that social media is a new possibility that hasn't really been 
you know, explored in great substance, you know, to capture the imagination and interest of, you know, two billion young people in the world today. I think there's there's potential here to to turn this around, but I haven't seen it just yet. And right now, yeah, the mainstream media is preoccupied with Gaza and Ukraine, and for sure, these are terrible crises. Um, and I think your point, Chris, is that also, you know, Sudan is perhaps at the head of a list of, you know, the Myanmar's and Afghanistan's of the world are also behind this. Um, so there's a systemic issue here, but I don't think all is lost. And, you know, we see we see what global compassionate interest can be for Gaza. Like suddenly the, you know, light switch has gone in the world about abuse and atrocity in different parts. And, um, you know, hope that the same interest can be, can be leveled for Sudan. We just need to take a different run up at it now. Um, unfortunately but i think there are ways 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 forward on that um uh, bashir on like do we have different approaches yet yeah, this is for sure a regional crisis um and um there is there is no response plan but i haven't yet seen the system organize itself to have leadership on well what precisely do we want to what's the package for sudanese people you know why have we been silent when you know one country to the north has basically closed its borders uh, you know, why are we being silent when, you know, a few hundred thousand genocide survivors in eastern Chad have almost nothing to eat still? Um, so I think there's a, also a moment to look at not just country level systems, but but regional leadership and regional coordination. And that that's an opportunity to to step it up a bit. Um, and uh, yeah, for sure, there's different areas and what, you know, the big formal system might work well in government-controlled parts of the country. Uh, what can we learn from the Myanmar's and Syria's and other parts where actually there's not so much government control in Darfur or Kordofan or Khartoum? And what's the best way to, to empower local mutual aid and then fill in the gaps you know, after that? Uh, I think there's, there's you know, this is where we need the leadership and the system to, to, to come in. Um, and uh, the colleague from from LSE um yeah I think on your question you know what we need both we, we need both you know engagement in conflict affected areas like there are people suffering there and but clearly this is one of the world's largest displacement crises as well um so I, I think uh, I couldn't say it's neither or but um you know the tendency is to go where it's safer and easier and work on the displacement crisis only and you know, leave the conflict affected. Do we negotiate directly or not with you know some of the armed groups? And we are, you know, I crossed six RSF checkpoints getting into West Darfur. Um, it's not easy, but there's capacity within the system and knowledge. But important for us to help people wherever they are in in the country and to keep that that mission and spirit going. Can I ask just a follow up question about that kind of, I guess, accessing very insecure and inaccessible areas. I mean, there's a question here online about Kadugli in particular, um, and the fact that, you know, areas like Kadugli are completely cut off now. Um, and just how, how we reach them, how we understand, you know, the level of humanitarian needs in these contexts and, um, you know, what can be done in specific contexts like that. Yes, yeah, I mean, uh... Uh, that these the Kordofan, Kudugli and South Kordofan and, and Kordofan is, uh, you know, almost is a different conflict in itself yeah. and, and isolated in different ways. Um, 
I think the first thing is, you know, the, the classic image of, uh, you know, aid convoys and, you know, 17 trucks lining up and eventually making its way through to some, you know, besieged city. Okay, there's a bit of that, but we need to rethink about how, you know, local economies work, how the mutual aid systems are trying to, you know, pull resilience together and how to, to support into this. So um, I, it's, we need... How is it working at the moment? Yeah, at the moment we've barely got any assistance into Kadugli. Is that this is a fact? That's not to say that there's not services being provided. There's not a local system. There's not some productivity of you know foodstuffs in the area. Um, but they're really on their knees in, in these isolated parts, and it's a huge worry. You know, okay, the atrocities in Darfur are really jarring, but there's the rest of Sudan as well. And this is one of the big differences from. The Sudan 20 years ago that a lot of people remember and you know the Kordofan and what's happening in Khartoum and the huge urban displacement in eastern Sudan um so uh yeah I mean how we work it needs to to differ we've got to change the system though of how we respond but also how we think about response yeah thank you I'm aware that we're up against the hour and there were lots of hands up in the room so there might be some of you that need to leave so please please do if you have to and also online but if it's okay we'll go on for I think another 15 20 minutes um um so please stay with us if you can um and I'll try and we've got some questions online as well I'll introduce those but there was a few people that we didn't come to um so maybe there's uh, a lady here at the front um and also someone further back. So we'll take those two questions at least. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, Uzma, I was previously with um, UNHCR in Sudan and South Sudan, based in the Kurdifan states. Um, my point is actually related to what's kind of already been touched upon in terms of the involvement of the diaspora. Mm -hmm. Now, just a couple of days ago, I was at the launch of a report by Shabaka on the role of the Sudanese diaspora in you know, responding to this crisis. And one of the things that came out was that, you know, there's a huge number of people in the diaspora who are not only supporting their close family, but also several people within their community. But one of the things that they felt was that, um, uh, firstly, these efforts were not coordinated, but secondly, they felt like they were not really kind of involved, uh, they were not really involved in the overall humanitarian response. And so some of the challenges that they faced that they could be supported with you know, through international organizations, they felt like they were just not being involved in a way that they could, you know, get assistance, but also, you know, use their resources to support international organizations who are, you know, not getting them from donors. And so this is just something I thought, uh, yeah. So it's almost like there's another system there that is, is and, the diaspora system that and is the, also excluded, to, they, to use yeah. your words. And yeah. they, are, they are keen to support. They yeah. have, you know, the resources living abroad, but in some ways they don't really know how to navigate it in the way that INGOs or the UN would know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we have another question at the back. And then if anyone else wants to ask a question, please raise your hand and I'll bring in a couple from, from online as well. Hi, everyone. My name is Ola, and I work on education in protracted crisis. Um, I'm really glad this panel is taking place today. And at the same time, I feel like I'm like a broken record saying the same thing over and over for a long time in terms of localization, in terms of slow response. And I'm hearing the same thing over and over. Um, so maybe flipping things on, on his head, also with the fact that many people are starting to feel fatigued and overwhelmed, 
Can you think of any even small positive examples of localization, of when local actors were heard and included or given funding, something that, you know, if we work on crisis in Syria or somewhere else, we can take as an inspiration and an example to keep going. Thank you. Thank you. We have another question here. Thank you for the panel, um, Shema Ahmed. I used to work for ICRC and now um, part of the diaspora. Um, so I think it's more of a reflection, but then followed by a question. Um, there, I, we all agree that there is no structure currently, um, not in the government response uh, or no government, but also not in the international response. And I'm just um, wondering how how can the humanitarian uh, community organize? Uh, I think, Will, you, you alluded to the system coming together and organizing itself, but I, I don't think that's likely to happen without leadership. Um, and we don't really see big international humanitarian organizations coming together or um, any of them kind of assuming this leadership role. So, yeah, just wondering how how this can be changed and how the voices can come together and um, and be amplified. Um, is it through the UN? Because I don't think UNITAMS or UN has done anything to bring together the voices or create um, a response, a, a shared response. So yeah, just how can we come about that? Thank you very much. And there's another fourth question that I'm just going to read out, and I can see that Etisaz wants to come in. Um, but uh, a question about the UK response, um, and um, you know, to what what was your view on the level of uh, political leadership, but also kind of more widely the the Ukraine humanitarian um, response, and how do we get um, if UK public and political audiences to engage much more in in this crisis, um, given its scale and given its its severity, um, and uh, whether um, whether just the wider geopolitical implications, the regional implications, is that the hook that we need to use, or what would be the hook that would get kind of greater attention in the UK? Um, Etizaz, back, back to you again. Yeah, thank you. I just want to uh, just highlight it because it seemed that we didn't provide it clear. So our support to the local initiative or community initiative, the emergency room or the mutual aid initiative is being provided. So we many clearly to deliver some support and also to correct um, Social with the money that we've been delivered to the to the, the emergency room is way beyond the amount that you mentioned because uh, for us I I I alone we really delivered an aid more than that so uh, the figures but at uh, Sawangani mentioned is not captured and is not reported and because it's really not coordinated well uh, then another issue is just to focus on the uh, like community initiative or emergency room. Also, that capacity to scale and to cover it, because they are very uh, limited and they are very have a limited uh, coverage, and they cannot really scale and expand, because that is the maximum coverage they can reach. Because even the way they are being really designed and created is to have a neighborhood coverage. So 
it's very fragmented. If you need to organize and bring them together, also it's very difficult. So the fragmentation of those initiatives and the way they are operating also is so challenging, even in Khartoum alone, just forget about Sudan. So it had, and during this emergency, the aid, the, the aid diversion also is one big concern that you don't know how the money can be used or the, the aid that it can be. So there's a lot of issue people, they, we, we, we've been looking at it critically, but I, we are really working very hard to support them as much as we could based on their limited capacity they have. And also they are very new to this type of uh, uh, intervention. So they are lacking really a lot of knowledge about the humanitarian law, about the humanitarian principle. So there's a lot of things they should be tackling and moving it together. But I'm assuring the, 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 the audience there that is a lot of intended effort that is being put in place. We are very carefully working together to try to support them as much we could because we believe they are really providing a very uh, tangible and very quick and very important role. But also there is a lot of limitation that they have in the system now they are operating with. So we need, and also it is really a very, uh, we don't need to do harm. If you look at the people that were impacted in the, the, the emergency room, the number is being killed, the number is being imprisoned, they are very, very big. So that is another aspect. So we don't need to do harm to those a few volunteers. They have no experience to deal with that. So I guess it is really a trade-off and we need to maintain and be in the middle so we can support them as much as they could but also not pushing them at the edge or stretching their limited capacity or moving them to move to the a very a very dangerous area, just to deliver aid to area that you know sometimes it's better to stop not doing anything because it can cause more harm than really uh, better causes. Over. Thanks, Etisaz, and thanks for correcting me on that as well. I knew ICRC, or IRC was doing a lot of work, but I yeah, I don't have the figures and I think it helps at least give some positive example to your to your answer as well. Um, I don't know if any of you are well placed to pick up that question about the diaspora and how to include diaspora. I feel like we should almost ask Shabaka that question. <laughs> um, but if either of you want to pick it up, um, and also the the kind of the issue of coordination and UK leadership. So maybe first to you, Will, and then um, you can pick up. Uh, yeah. Um... I mean, but as we try and figure out a better system and moving forward, um, clearly, um, you know, recognizing and including and leveraging local response and diaspora responses is a necessary part of the way forward. There isn't there isn't an efficient way forward which continues as we are, which is sort of either formal national or international organizations. We have to take one step back and look at what else is happening with remittances with other forms of you know technical support with other you know contributions to this and i think one of the problems is that we haven't been able to count you know what the contribution from local responders or the diaspora is i, I don't i couldn't tell you is it 100,000 or 10 million people that have been assisted by by emergency response rooms uh, clearly they're working in some of the worst parts of the country um, under terrible conditions, doing heroic work, but we don't know the scale. And, and at that sort of policy level, this is where we sort of feel that there's reticence of how much to 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 you know invest and how to make it how to make it work. Um, but that we need to square that circle. I think to come back to the, I think Shaima from former ICRC, you know, who's going to coordinate this revisioning? It's a good question. Yeah, we don't quite know, and this is something we're 
trying to, to to figure our way through and part of this journey i think and part of the next few weeks and months i think the uh, ingo forum at least wants to try and play a catalyzing effect on this and before it gets to the one year mark you know in the next three four five months what events what conversations strategically need to happen what options need to be furnished and how do we bring local responders and bring the diaspora and bring the national ngo forum and figure out you know donors in the international system a bit a bit more so there's a challenge to us so i don't have the solution but there's a commitment here to figure out how this is going to going to work um and ola i mean um there's there is um some funds going to local responders um it's, as you said Swatcher, it, i mean regardless of the number it's still peanuts in the grand scheme of things um you know disproportionate to what they're doing and the effects um um but there is more and more coming we need to figure out a better mechanism to do so in terms of being heard you know this tomorrow I've, you know some of us fly to cairo there's a sudanese civil society organized event which is supposed to bring local frontline responders emergency rooms and some of the professional associations together it's not perfect there's criticism of how it's you know framed but it is an opportunity for for you know for local actors to to meet and to to start, begin to set a humanitarian agenda the the product isn't the final product it's the start of a process i think it needs to be continued but um you know we've been many of us are supportive of this many of us are going from the international community to listen and participate and to commit to following up on some of the recommendations there so i think in terms of beginning to get recognized and heard with starting um we need to ingrain it a bit more but um Lastly, on the UK response, I mean, it, it was the media was interested in the evacuations. There has been some great journalists who have kept abreast, um, but uh, you know, UK holds the pen, you know, on this at the Security Council on what the mission in Sudan is supposed to, or the special political mission in Sudan is supposed to be. Um, kind of expected more leadership, um, regardless of funds, you know some political leadership into this, but we've seen a very disorganized, you know, what's happening in Jeddah versus Addis versus Cairo, you know, different initiatives that we're not quite sure, you know, where they're going. So I think UK has a role now to play in helping bring a more coherent picture and, and helping facilitate this, this vision. It, you know, is a senior donor government has historic links to a country. It's not the only solution. It shouldn't be the only leader in this, but we definitely expect the UK to, to step up more. And we met with parliamentarians yesterday and met, you know, meeting the F, you know, Foreign Office today to encourage them to take this up. There's, there is much more that the UK can and should, and I hope will do. And you know, we've got to bring this together as a, a really important part of, of the puzzle of a solution. Thank you. Um, you have the last word because I think we've run over. Um, so maybe, yeah, anything you want to pick up from the questions, but any final remarks as well? Um, this discussion, I mean, I work in Sudan, so I know it's, it, as we say it every day, it's a complex crisis, but listening to all the points that have come in from the room really underscores just how complex um, this, this situation we find ourselves in. And I think I want to throw it back to the audience as well we are not perfect and we don't know everything. 
And we need to be called out where we are failing as well. Um, and having these interactions um, really opens the space for us to reflect on where we can do better, but also that idea generation around what can the NGOs do should not be left to the NGOs on their own to figure out. And so um, to the point um, that was raised earlier about entry points into some of these conversations, there are some working groups which include members of the diaspora, members of other organizations, um, so encouraging members of the audience as well and those online to continue participating in, in these four because they do generate ideas for us as well and give us things to think about as we walk out of these rooms. Um, so just a final word to say thank you to everyone for coming. Thank you for your support and we hope um, that you can pass on some of the messages you've heard today. And we really need to galvanize action because if we do not act, we will we will look back um, as as Chris said 30 years later and think I could have done something. Um, so really calling on everyone to support and get behind um, what what's happening and spread the word. Um, and so thank you to everyone for your time. And yeah, thank you for me as well. Um, you know, um, this meeting came together very quickly. We were fortunate that um, the, the team were, were visiting um, on a European and UK tour. And I, what I'm really struck by is not just kind of, I guess, the scale and the numbers, which, you know, you see written down. But I think when you hear from, from you just what that means and what you're seeing on the ground, it really is, you know, you know, really sobering um, and really saddening, um, as you said. But I think also just, I guess, the humility that um, that you've all come with. I mean, oftentimes I think you can hear from international organizations um, who come in and kind of think they have all the answers and that they're the solution. And I think in this context, I mean, it was never, it, it, the international response is never the answer, I think. But what, I mean, is somewhat heartening actually is, you know, in a horrible way is just to kind of hear the fact that, you know, there isn't a suggestion that an international response is the solution and the idea that we need kind of, you know, all of the different systems, whether it's the diaspora, whether it's working with the, the local uh, mutual aid efforts, the local NGOs that I think we've spoken less about today, but are also um, really um, performing under really difficult circumstances, but also we need to scale up the international response with the leadership that you've spoken um, about as well. It's not an either or situation. And um, maybe just to, to end it there, I think we as HPG, um, we've traditionally worked quite a bit on Sudan. So it's a, it's a crisis that we've been trying to um, you know, engage with over the course of this year in particular. Um, and I think we'll continue to do so um, because I think it is a context that does require kind of continued support and attention. Um, but I think it's beholden on all of us to try and follow up on the efforts that, that you are doing to keep keep the attention on Sudan. So thanks to all of you, to Etizaz for um, joining us from Port Sudan. Port Sudan. Um, uh, to to you for um for for coming um and to to sharing all of this with us and a big thanks to to Nosheen and uh, the comms team here in HPG who've pulled this together for us um, and just a final request um the team have put together a survey uh, for those on you you online I think there's a link to it um, we want to see how we can improve improve these events so let us know how we've done and whether we can approve them but um, maybe we can finally put our hands together with a big thanks. Yeah.